Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We are in the third week of this sermon series, uh, Bless, talking about uh, intentional evangelism. The, the last S that we're working towards at the end of the series is share your story. So we're, we're talking about people in our lives that don't know Jesus, people that are far from him, people that, uh, that God has put on our hearts, that we would love to uh, have know Christ and know his forgiveness and know his mercy and his love. Uh, and I think we all have those people. But, but if I just started with share your story, uh, that would be pretty intimidating for most Christians, right? It would be pretty intimidating to just, just think in your head, how do, how do I even do that? How do I even get there? Or maybe, maybe I tried that and the door was slammed in my face, either, either physically or just relationally, right? Maybe, maybe I tried that and it didn't work out well. So we're going through this, this process. It, the B is begin with prayer. Last week, we talked about listening with care. Uh, today is eat together, one of my favorites. Uh, and then the S is, is on serving the other person and service, and then finally sharing your story. So, so as we're getting there, this, this is all leading somewhere. Uh, so this service is it's about eating together, but it, it's about so much more than just sharing a meal with someone else. In our scripture reading today, Jesus ate with Matthew. He ate with Matthew's friends that were invited, but it was about so much more than food. It was about so much more than than simply just satisfying the, the needs that we have as human beings, as, as created beings that we need to be eating. And, and in the first week, uh, I was really encouraged. We did uh, begin with prayer, and I had you write down people in your own lives that you want to be praying for, and they were on those bookmarks. Uh, maybe you remember if you were here. Uh, we took communion that week, and, and as you came forward, you brought that bookmark with and, and placed it on the table, and they were sitting over here in this wooden box, uh, and I counted them before the service last week, and there's 448 names in that box. 448 people that, that people in this church, uh, that, that God has put on their hearts, that they desire to know Jesus and, and know his love and his forgiveness. So, so when we're talking about this whole thing, this is not theoretical. We're not talking about uh, how do we become good evangelists and, and you're just going to memorize some kind of text and you're going to say a certain thing line by line. We're talking about 448 people that God has already put on your heart, that God has already been working in you. And, and I believe that when that happens, that God wants to use his people to reach, to reach the, the names there, to reach the, the people there, that, that God isn't uh, probably going to do that apart from Christians, apart from his followers. 
I believe the Holy Spirit is capable. I believe the Holy Spirit is able to just, just radically enter into their lives. But I think more often than not, at least what I've seen, is that God uses us. That God, that God equips us to be able to reach into each other's lives. So today we are on the E of bless. And, it, and like I said earlier, it stands for eat together. Um, and, and it's just about so much more than food. It's about so much more. It's about living life alongside someone else. It's about being in close proximity to someone else, sharing times together, even if they just seem like informal uh, times of life, things that we have to do anyway. How many of you have to eat this week? Right? <laughs> how many of you, if you want to go through this week well, are probably going to eat some food? So this, this is about how do we do that part of life alongside people that don't know Jesus yet, alongside others, not, not just our Christian friends, not just, not just people from church, but how do we do that alongside other people and live out the practical parts of life? Live out these really uh, important but also really mundane parts of life alongside other people and, and be able to live with them. It's really interesting when we talk about eating together with people because in some ways my, my mind goes, oh, that's easy. You look at the whole series, I'm like, uh, praying for someone, begin with prayer, okay, that's pretty easy. Listening, a little harder. Eat together, super simple. right? Serving someone else, harder. Sharing your story, sometimes really hard. Sometimes really intimidating. But, but the reality is, eat together is not that easy. There's actually, uh, I've been doing a lot of research in it this week, and, and hopefully this is interesting to you. I was a history major in college, so I love this kind of stuff. Um, but there's two things that changed in America after World War II that make eating together very difficult. There's two important things. The first one is this. The shape of our cities and how they've been developed since World War II has made living life alongside each other increasingly more difficult. And we live in a place that's a perfect example of this. Um, I live in one of the very, I live in Mill Woods, a neighborhood in Arnold here. I live in one of the few neighborhoods where I look out my front door and I see other people's houses, like more than one, right? Right, most of you that, if you're full-time here, you're, you're spaced out. Um, and it's beautiful and it's really nice, but that's the design of it. You don't, you don't randomly, very often, come across your neighbors like people used to, even just before World War II. Like, even just how cities were set up then, I mean, I mean, just think about it. We're not that far away from a time where most cities were set up to have a main central hub, a town square. And in the town square, there was markets and they were shopping and, and people engaged in regular casual conversation with other people in their town. And, and it was the center of town life. It was where everything was focused. And, and not only did it exist, it was a part of your life daily. It was a part of, of everyday life that you entered into that space and, and you interacted with others. Uh, Susan and I, when, when William, our oldest, was young, we lived uh, in an inner city in, in Minneapolis. Uh, we actually lived in St. Paul, but we were right uh, in the inner city area. And part of that uh, that was pretty neat is we noticed that there was a front porch culture to where we lived. Now, here's a few reasons why. We lived in an area that not many people had air conditioning. And it was hot. It was Minnesota, but it was hot all right, in the summer. Super humid. You didn't want to just sit inside. And there wasn't these like elaborate backyards with outdoor living spaces. So people lived on their, on their front porch. And, and as you walked past, people interacted with their neighbors. 
This was a normal thing. And this was a normal thing all across the United States. People, people interacted with other people regularly. Now, most of the time we travel through our neighborhood, we're doing it inside of our cars. Most of the time we travel through, we, we drive through a neighborhood, we see a bunch of houses that you can't even tell if someone's there or not. Right now, maybe there's a light on, but that's about it. And you travel through and you, you either pull into your, own, into your own garage and you enter into your house at the end of the day and there you stay until the morning. So, so as we think about eating together, part of, part of eating together is we need to be living life alongside other people, right? We're living in these little isolated pockets and it's no wonder that, that as we look at our world that so many people in our time struggle with loneliness, struggle with isolation, struggle with being separated from others. Now, the other really fascinating thing that happened after World War II, and it's particularly after World War II, is that there was an effort to convince you, as the consumer, that making food was difficult. And I'm not just like a conspiracy theorist, right? Like, this this is a real thing. So what happened was World War II, the United States built a lot of factories, and they were producing many, many things in, in relation to the war, right? And a lot of those factories, they, they couldn't just close down after the war. They had to start producing other things. And one of the things a lot of these factories changed over to was processed foods. So after World War II, we start get this boom of processed foods. And one of the good things that happened is that it, it kept people employed, right? It kept the economy going, all of a sudden... But they needed to convince you, all of us, that making food at home was hard. And, and again, it's not just like a conspiracy thing. Like, look it up. It's a thing. They convinced us that, that preparation of food at home was difficult and that it was much easier to purchase uh, mass-produced, uh, kind of big market food, uh, and then we prepare it at home. And um, while that's, I don't know, neither here nor there as far as uh, if that's you know, good or bad or whatever. It kind of depends on how you feel about processed foods. But when it comes to eating together, it has actually had an impact. Because the majority of Americans think that serving a meal to other people is difficult. Where the majority of Americans didn't feel that way before. They would have friends and family over, and it was, it was nothing. It, was, it, was, it might cost extra money to buy that much food, but the idea of, oh, I'm going to serve 10 people tonight instead of just my family, or I'm going to serve 15 people tonight, was not as intimidating. We were used to it as a culture, and it happened really regularly. But now it's like we've been convinced that, that eating together is hard. It's more convenient to just kind of have my own little meal and, and live in my own little life and, and have my own little space. And, and if I do like the outdoors, then I'll, I'll put my outdoor living space in the backyard, surrounded by a big fence, depending on where you live, right? And, and I, I'm just as guilty of it as other people. I've had places I've lived in my life that, that I wouldn't even recognize my next-door neighbor. You're all like, that's terrible, and then you try to think of what your next-door neighbor looks like right? That, that I wouldn't even know like who they are. I could just see that if I went to, uh, I don't know, the town square, you know, something like that, and, and I came across my neighbor that they might look familiar, and that'd be about it. Certainly wouldn't know their name, wouldn't know anything about their lives. I, I, might, even, I know, might know what car they have, because it sits in the driveway when they're home, but that, that's about it. And that's so many of us. So as we talk about eating together, part of it is we need to be living life alongside other people. We need to do 
do this intentionally. Susan and I actually had people over to our house a few weeks ago, and it wasn't that hard. And, and we had 10 adults over, and there was 15 kids. And it wasn't that hard. <laughs> it really wasn't that hard. Some of you are like, oh my, okay, that's a little much. Set the bar high, right? Uh, some of them, some of them wonderfully were church people, people that, people that we go to church with, people that go to other churches, and some of them were not. And it was beautiful, and they were able to interact with each other, and the kids ran around, and they played outside, and they went down the street to the little park there and played some basketball, and, and the parents did what parents do, and we sat inside and talked to each other. And, and it was really fun. And despite what they tell you, it was not that difficult. It was not that hard to prepare for that many people, but it was a blessing, and it was awesome, and it was so fun to do. So uh, we're going to be talking about eating together, and I think it's only right to, to dive deep into a scripture verse. So here we are at the calling of Matthew, uh, here in Matthew chapter 9, again, verses 9 through 13. There's several things that I think we can take away uh, from this verse. Really, there's countless things, but several things for today. And, and one is that as Jesus is coming, it just stands out to me that he saw a man named Matthew. Jesus saw him. He, he didn't just pass by. And, and Matthew, we're, we're told he's a tax collector. That means he works for the Romans. That means to, to the people in his own society, he works for the enemy. Right? But how it worked back then is, is he was not paid by the Romans to be a tax collector. He didn't like get a salary. Right? And you've probably heard this if you've, if you've gone to church for any amount of time, but, but he relied on his taxes to supply his own needs. So he would tax uh, essentially extra, and then he could live off that extra. And what, what tended to happen uh, for most tax collectors back then is, is greed kind of worked its way in. And they would tax their own people extra, and they'd li start living kind of a life of luxury. And, and just imagine what it was like to be his neighbors. Imagine what it was like to be his friends or his relatives as you see Matthew's house become more and more lavishly decorated. Imagine what it was like to be his neighbors and his friends and his relatives as his clothes become a little finer, as his food becomes a little richer, as he's living this new lifestyle that, that you see him living into. And everyone knew, everyone knew that it was supported by their money. Money he had taken from them, some of which he had given to the enemy and some of which he was able to keep for himself. taking advantage of his own people. And here, Jesus finds him sitting in his tax collector's booth. And Jesus comes by, and he immediately saw through all these layers of greed, all these layers of selfishness, everything that had been going on inside of Matthew. Jesus saw through all of it, and he met this tax collector in a special way, and, and he could see that, that there was this sickness inside of him, but it was not him. He could see that there was the sin inside of him, but it wasn't who Matthew was. He could see 
who Matthew really was, that he was a child of God, that, that he, needed, he needed a cure for what was happening. He knew that Matthew wouldn't resist the chance to make more money for himself. So Jesus engages Matthew in conversation. And he says, follow me. And we're told that Matthew got up and followed him. And later we read that Jesus came to Matthew's house for dinner that night. Jesus kind of invites himself over to Matthew's house. And um, I believe that, that Jesus could see the best in Matthew. That Jesus didn't see Matthew who he is right now, but he saw who he could be. And, and it's so beautiful because I am so thankful that Jesus does the same for each one of us. That he doesn't just see who we are right now. He sees, he sees us as his precious children who he could be, what it looks like to be formed more and more into the image of Christ. He saw through this rough exterior, and he saw this child of God. And Jesus goes to Matthew's house for dinner, and Matthew invites all over, he invites over all of his friends, all of his his companions to meet this Jesus, this one who saw him as he walked down the street. And who would be friends with this tax collector? Who would his friends be? When, um, who are his closest companions? And we actually we hear uh, directly in verse 11 from the Pharisees' voice who they saw these people as. Right? So Matthew has invited over everyone that's close to him. Come meet this Jesus. And this is what the, the Pharisees called this group that has now gathered. He calls them the tax collectors and sinners. So Matthew has invited all these tax collectors and sinners to meet this Jesus. Now it's a group with, with Jesus and his disciples and the low life of society, the despised, the hated, the ones that are, that are unwanted and, and certainly undeserving. And Jesus and Matthew and these tax collectors and sinners, they break bread together. And we're told that the Pharisees, looking on, the, the, the best of the religious people, the, the, the top of uh, society, that the people that follow the rules, the people that know the laws, the people that, that other people look up to and say, wow, are they holy? Wow, are they close to God? They start looking at Jesus and Matthew and these tax collectors and sinners, and they start to grumble. And why are the people so upset? He just went to someone's house for dinner. He just went to someone's house to eat. But but we need to understand, in this ancient Near Eastern culture that we're looking into, when when we look into Scripture, that eating with someone was really socially important. If you ate with someone else, what you were saying was that you wanted to be associated with that person. It was like you were putting your arm around them and saying, this is one of my people. When you, think of this, when you think of me, think of this person. When you think of this person, think of me. And Jesus has entered into this house, and, and that's what he's saying. And it, and it makes sense that the Pharisees, these, these really uh, well-educated, and, and they behave so well. right? They're so good. And they look, and they say, why is Jesus eating with them? 
these tax collectors and these sinners. Why would he want to be associated with those people? It doesn't say it in the text. I kind of imagine them saying, why isn't he eating with us tonight? We're, we're the people that have been doing it. We, we were the people that uh, have been loyal, that have been trying to follow after God. Why is, why is Jesus not eating with us? Why is he eating with these tax collectors and these sinners? And they start to question who this Jesus is based on who he's associating with. Oh, this is, this is not just telling us something about the tax collectors and sinners. This is now telling us something about Jesus. And the Pharisees are not sure that they're a fan of the interpretation that they're getting of who this Jesus is. Now, this is only Matthew chapter 9, but as we go further into the gospel, we're going to find out exactly who this Jesus is. This is, this is a Jesus who died on the cross for these people. He, he not only will eat with them, later on he's going to die on the cross for these tax collectors and these sinners. He's going to make the ultimate sacrifice to be with them. In Jesus' own words, as he looks back at the Pharisees and he gives them a critique of their own grumbling towards him, he says this, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I just love that, that line in the beginning of verse 13. But go and learn what this means. This is, this is an old uh, rabbinic tradition that, that would have dated way back into Old Testament times. And, and it's what uh, the teachers would tell their youngest students when they didn't understand something. Jesus knew what he was saying. <laughs> it's what the teachers would tell the youngest students. They, they would be confused about something in the Bible and they would t- say to them, go and learn what this means. And then they would quote something. From the Old Testament. So here Jesus is talking to, to the highest people in their religious society, right? These are the people that have it right. These are the people that have it all figured out. And, and he's talking to them like they're the little kids that are starting to follow the teacher. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And he is quoting the Old Testament, it's from the book of Hosea. I desire mercy not sacrifice. It's a beautiful text in Scripture, and I feel like it has some value if we just pause right there, if we just stop right there and we look at it and we kind of leave it uh, in a way 2,000 years ago. You know, we kind of, I don't know, I feel like we're often tempted to do that. We look at a chunk of Scripture and we're like, okay, that makes sense. I learned a little more. Um, But I I think with this Eat Together series, I think it's time for a little honest assessment. Not of each other, but honest assessment of ourselves. When you look at this story, there's really three main characters here. There's Jesus, there's Matthew, and there's the Pharisees. The honest assessment part is which one is most like you. As Christians, we know we're called to be like Jesus in the world, right? We're called to imitate him and And as we continue to follow him, we're called to look more and more like Jesus and behave more and more like Jesus. But but again, we see three main characters. We see Matthew, the tax collector, and he's an outsider. He doesn't fit in. He doesn't fit in with his own people, 
because of his occupation. And he certainly doesn't fit in with the Romans because of his ethnicity. He doesn't fit in with anyone. He's quite possibly the last person that good people should be associating with. That a good, respected man like Jesus should be spending time with. And then we have Jesus. Jesus is reaching out and he's dining with and associating with these these tax collectors and these, these hated sinners of their time. He's unafraid of wrecking his own reputation. He's not worried about the grumbling that, that's going on. He's unashamed about dining with Matthew and his friends and these, these tax collectors and these sinners. He's willing to risk his own reputation if it means loving other people well, if it means, means pointing them to his father, if it means connecting with them and drawing them back in uh, to a right relationship with God and a new way of living. And then, I think possibly in, in a really convicting way, we have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they're sitting back. You know, they're observing. They're looking at the whole thing. They're, they're judging, they're critiquing, they're leaning on their own righteousness and thinking that they are worthy. They're worthy of, uh, of, they're worthy of, of this connection with God, but they're also worthy of, like, why, why aren't we the ones dining with Jesus? Why aren't we the ones being cared for? Why isn't he connecting with, why isn't he associating with us? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why those kind of people? Shouldn't he be dining with with me? Shouldn't he be dining with people like me, with respected people, with moral people, with people who do everything right? Or at least it looks like it on the outside? And again, we come to these kind of texts, and I think, I think we should pause and have some honest self-assessment time. We are not going to be able to eat with other people well. If, if how we treat them, if how we live alongside them, if how we behave as the church in their midst looks more like the Pharisees and less like Jesus. We're not going to be able to do it. And And the reality is, it's not a question of which one do you wish you were. It's it's a question of based on your behavior, based on your thoughts, based on how you treat and how you interact with other people, based on that gut feeling you have when when you see someone else, which one looks most like you? And if we're quite honest, I, I think we back up and then we kind of assess and we look at, I'll just, I'll just back up even further and say, just the church in America. Let's just back up and, and look at that. And, and I see a lot of two of these camps. I see a church that, that has a lot of Matthews. It has a lot of hurting people. It has a lot of people that, that need someone to come alongside them, that need need that encouragement, that people that come into the back door of a church and, and look for a word of hope and hopefully find it. And I see so many Pharisees in this story. And, and this is not like 
like me giving you the, the guilt blame, right? This is, this is not what this is about. This is, this is us looking at ourselves and saying, Jesus, work on me. Jesus, just, just cut away this, this mess, this facade, all this, this self-righteousness that is built up over years and years of thinking I behave the right way, thinking I act the right way, thinking I can, I can do this in my own strength, thinking I can live this out, and, and then I see someone who's hurting and I'm calloused. Lord, what is happening? What, what has happened inside of us? That we see the, the Matthews and the, and the sinners and the tax collectors in our own society, and, and we say, why, why would Jesus be with them? Why wouldn't Jesus be with me? Why wouldn't Jesus be with us? There's this wonderful song by an artist named Todd Agnew. It's uh, maybe 10, 15 years old. It's called My Jesus. Uh, I really like it. Uh, worth, worth Googling later. Uh, My Jesus. And there's this line that has just been sitting with me for the last probably two, three weeks. And I'm not sure why, but maybe it makes sense here. He's, he's singing about Jesus and saying that Jesus, uh, you know, was with those that hurt. He was with those that are in pain. And then he uses this line, he says, my Jesus wouldn't even be accepted in my church because the dirt and blood on his feet might stain the carpet. Powerful words of critique right, into a church system that has become something that looks, that looks a lot different than Jesus. That looks a lot different than how Jesus lived out his life. If, if he walked in right now, would he even be accepted or would, would there be some kind of church security team that would all turn? And we would be all nervous, right? And, and we, would, we would look at him and we'd be like, I don't know, is this, is this Jesus a problem? Because of who he associates with. Because of who he's been living alongside. Because of how he looks and he dresses and he behaves and, and who he's been walking with. I don't know the answer, but, but I feel like there's something inside of that, that that digs deep. At least into me, it digs deep. You know, maybe if we can figure out how, as a church, we can look more like Jesus and less like these other two groups, or at least come alongside the Matthews as, as Jesus did, then, then we can learn how to love people well again. Then maybe that's what the church can be known for again. Doesn't it kind of break your heart when you, when you look at media, you look at everything else, and you, you say, what, what is the church known for? And we're known for what we're against. We're known for what we're against. That, that's, that's how the world looks at us. We're known for being split into a million different parts. Most recent numbers, and I was surprised by this, most recent numbers that worldwide, there are now 40,000 denominations. 40,000 denominations. Not like individual churches, right? You're talking groups of churches that, that for the most part, think they have the correct theology. 40,000 of them. Worldwide. And yet Jesus prayed that the church would be one. Jesus prayed that the church would be one so that they would know that his father sent him. 
And people look at a fragmented church, a church that, that is so sure they're correct that they're willing to hurt people. And they're, and they're willing to, to ostracize people and, and push away the tax collectors and push away the sinners. And, and then you have people that look in and say, I don't want to be a part of that. And, and it breaks my heart. I think, we just, I think we need to own it some. I think we need to repent. I think we as the church, I think this, this should continue to break us that, that we are praying for people and some of them, just quite frankly, are, are not interested. They might be interested in Jesus and, and we can keep praying for that, but, but this church thing, they look and they see Pharisees and they say, mm, that's not really me. I have people in my own life that that because of how they love people, that because of, of how they walk along, and it's not you know, political lines or any of this kind of stuff, it's because of, of how they care for others that they're like, I, I'm not sure I'm sold on going to a church because I, I think I'll just get hurt. That, that should sting, Right? I don't think I'm the only people. I'm not the only person that knows people, right? I'm not the only person that, that, that has loved ones, that has family members that are like, I'm not sure about this thing. And, and it's convicting, and yet we look here and Jesus comes alongside Matthew. Does Jesus agree with what Matthew is doing? He does not. You can get that from other places in Scripture. Is Jesus fully endorsing Everything Matthew, that's going on in Matthew's life. He's not. But he is far more willing to associate with Matthew than with the tax collector, or than, than with the Pharisees. He's willing to walk with them because, because they're hurting and they're in pain. And, and he's not only going to associate with them, he's going to die on the cross for them. And, and then we're called to, to follow him into this world. <laughs> 